0: All right, I have a question for you parents. Do you remember your child's first steps? If you have multiple children, probably by the third or fourth one, it's like, yeah, okay, they're walking. But for the first kids, it's, it's a big deal. It's a beautiful moment. It's the exact time when they cease being infants and begin the next stage, toddlers. They immediately feel less helpless and less tiny. They are literally reaching a major life stage right before your eyes. It's a very exciting thing. It's a real miracle. uh believe it or not, Zoe started walking when she was nine months old. Um, we have the video evidence to prove it. I was going to make us watch it, but it's it's just her walking and falling it's not not, not amazing video, but her first steps were on april twenty first two thousand nine, uh, which was three days after her nine month birthday. Sadly, I wasn't there to witness it. Angie was in Ontario with her family at the time. Uh, it was spring break. She was on mat leave, so she was there when Zoe started to walk. But nine months, that's early. It's like we were raising her in the African Serengeti among the lions and jackals. She had to get up and walk before she was chased by predators. She was up and moving so soon. She had places to go, and she wasn't going to let anything stand in her way. She had goals, man. She had goals. She was going somewhere. Tegan, not so much. Uh, Twelve months old much more casual than Zoe, which is generally true even today. But for both girls and for your kids, those first steps are so wondrous and so awe-inspiring and so beautiful. Even though we know it's coming, we know eventually they will walk, it's still such a powerful moment to witness for ourselves watching someone take their first steps. It's truly miraculous every time. However, there's a flip side to that miracle. There's a flip side to having a mobile mini-human in the house. As soon as they can get up and walk, you begin to realize just what a death trap your house is that you live in. I remember watching Zoe toddle around our coffee table, this big black IKEA coffee table with these hard, pointy corners. And as I'm rejoicing in her progress, I'm also this hyper-tense bundle of anxiety, imagining her enormous, adorable head crashing into the corner of the, the coffee table, Careening into the pointy edge of this calamitous piece of furniture. How could we be so stupid as to have a coffee table? Who needs a coffee table when you have a child? Don't we love our children? And what idiot puts his record collection right in convenient infant grasp? Who does that? And what is she doing right now? Is she learning how to open doors? Is she climbing in the washing machine? Is she learning how to hotwire the minivan? What is she doing now that she's mobile? unforeseen threats and complications. Needless to say, learning to walk is a real miracle, but it leads to a few problems. Well, this was true for Peter and John as well. Last week we read about the miraculous gift of usable legs, given not to a 9-month-old or a 12-month-old, to a 40-year-old who had never experienced the simple blessing of walking. Peter was the conduit through whom the Holy Spirit healed this disabled man in the powerful saving name of Jesus Christ. Peter then preaches a sermon with the formerly crippled beggar hanging off him like the world's greatest sermon illustration ever about the power of Jesus. And this sermon, it galvanizes the curiosity and wonder of the crowds, and it turns many of them into followers of Jesus. As with my daughters and as with your children, seeing someone walk for the first time was a memorable and astounding miracle. How much more so when this was an unexpected walking. We expect our children to walk at 10, 11, 12 months. A man who's been unable to walk for 40 years is not expected to walk. What a miracle. However, what we'll see today is that as with the toddler, the miracle of new walking leads to serious issues for Peter and John. Unforeseen problems, serious threats. But will the apostles panic Will they surrender to their fears and uncertainties? Will they wither in the face of trials and persecution as they did on the night of Jesus' arrest and execution? No. Like nine-month-old Zoe, Peter and John had goals. They had places to get and things to do. There was no stopping them. They could not be stopped. Not by weakness, not by threats, not by prison, and not by fear. They could not be stopped. Today we will examine why that is. So let's read Acts 4, 1-22. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is a resurrection of the dead. They arrested them, and since it was already evening, put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed it, So the number of believers now totaled about 5,000 men, not counting women and children. The next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. They brought in the two disciples and demanded, By what power, or in whose name, have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. The man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, The stone that you builders rejected has now become the capstone. That's from Psalm 118. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there among them, there was nothing the council could say. So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber And conferred among themselves. What should we do with these men? they asked each other. We can't deny that they have performed a miraculous sign, and everyone in Jerusalem knows about it. But to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name again. So they called the apostles back in and commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard? The council then threatened them further, but they finally let them go because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot. For everyone was praising God for this miraculous sign, the healing of a man who had been lame for more than 40 years. We'll stop there. We've only gone a couple chapters after Jesus' glorious ascension, and already the believers are facing very real persecution. Acts 4 is the third chapter in a row No, fourth chapter in a row that features a powerful, passionate speech from Peter. Every time something significant happens in the life of the early church, there's Peter with just the words to say. Acts 4 marks an an important occasion in the history of the church. It's the first occurrence of a crucial theme in the book of Acts, not to mention the New Testament as a whole, not to mention the life of discipleship that each of us is called to, and that's the theme of perseverance through persecution. At every turn, the early church met someone actively trying to shut them up or lock them up or round them up or finish them up. As always, the radical life of self-sacrifice and the gracious community that we live out and proclaim, the salvation that we experience in one and only one name alone, the saving name of Jesus Christ, this radical life and powerful message force a reaction from the world. You cannot encounter the message of Jesus Christ and the life that he calls us to Without reacting in some way. Denial is, by the way, a reaction. That reaction from the world is most often negative. Occasionally it is positive, and every once in a while it gets violent. In the story of Acts, that violence occurred much more often than we'll ever understand. Although at this point in the story of Acts the crowds respond positively to the charisma, the leaders do not in fact if not for the favorable reaction of the crowds the temple leaders would have begun stamping out these jesus followers immediately They would have clamped down hard on peter and john except that the the crowds loved them and saw that what they did was good this was familiar to jesus as well as you probably remember as i said to the kids in that kids moment just now in the last several chapters of luke's gospel as jesus is in jerusalem battling the jewish leaders The the Jewish leaders try over and over again to trap him in his words so they can arrest him. And he just frustrates them more and more at every turn. Every time they try to trap him, he's there to frustrate them and expose them for their, their wicked hearts. Eventually, they have to just arrest him under cover of night. And they approach this gentle rabbi with clubs and swords, hauling him off in chains when the people can't see their injustice and rise up against them. They had to sneak around at night like dogs to arrest Jesus because the people could see that he was authoritative, that he was powerful. The temple leaders could see that too, and that's the problem. They recognized Jesus as a threat to their power and their authority as well. And that's exactly what's happening in Acts 4. The temple leaders, having heard this great commotion and recognizing these two hooligans as a couple of Galilean followers of that meddlesome Jesus character, the Jewish leaders swoop in with guns a-blazing. They bring all the authorities they have at their disposal to deal with Peter and John. Ignoring the fact that the beggar who they knew had been crippled for 40 years was now dancing and walking and celebrating and praising God. Ignoring that, putting that aside, they instead zone in on two troublesome aspects of Peter's speech. Two things that get Peter and John in trouble. Number one. They seem to be speaking with the authority of and even having a greater impact than their master, Jesus, the same master whom the temple leaders had despised and gotten executed. These rabble rousers appear to be speaking with the same kind of authority and teaching the same kinds of things that Jesus taught. Second of all, the content of their speaking seems to be centering around the resurrection of the dead. Specifically, the resurrection of that troublemaker, Jesus. They just keep talking about resurrection as if it's real, is what the temple leaders are thinking. Now, we have to kind of understand the situation to understand why this is such a problem. Peter and John are being um, accosted by the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is in charge of the temple. They're basically in charge of the, the Jewish religion, of the temple and everything associated with it. The Sanhedrin council was made up primarily of Sadducees. In fact, I think entirely of Sadducees. The high priest had been a Sadducee for, for generations. The Sadducees, as opposed to the Pharisees, were the ones who were in power. There's a few differences between the Sadducees and Pharisees. The Pharisees, they they believed in um, all their rules and regulations built up around the law. So laws that aren't in Scripture, but they believe support scripture. Sadducees had none of that. They wanted just the scripture. But the truly important difference for this passage is that the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. For the Sadducees who held power in the Sanhedrin, these two things, number one and two, uh, that they were speaking with the authority of Jesus and that they were speaking of the resurrection, they were doubly troubling things for the Sadducees. This was a big problem for them. First of all, they could not continue losing authority to Jesus. They thought they were done with Jesus. They couldn't keep losing authority to him. Because if they lost authority, they lost power, prestige, and profitability. They lost everything if they lost their authority. It is all about themselves. It's pretty obvious. All the people can see the the power and authority of Jesus and Peter and, and John. The Sanhedrin can see it too. And it challenges them. So they couldn't continue losing authority to Jesus. And secondly, the Sadducees disagreed with the Pharisees. If, if Peter's message about the truth of the resurrection was accurate, that would mean that ugh, the Pharisees would be right. Yuck. And they couldn't have that. Because if the Pharisees were right about that, then again, the Sadducees would lose power, prestige, profitability. They would lose authority to the Pharisees. The last thing the Sadducees wanted was to admit that the Pharisees were right. So any talk of resurrection had to be stamped out. No matter how you cut it, Peter's sermon threatened everything that the Sadducees loved. They couldn't keep losing authority to Jesus and to the Pharisees. And so, despite the fact that Peter and John had done something extraordinarily powerful and very, very good just a couple hours earlier, Despite that, they get thrown in jail with no justifiable charge levied against them. Just like we said to the girls up at the front here, how is that fair at all? How is it fair to be in prison for doing something good? And Peter calls them out on that. Rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Is that why we're being arrested? For healing someone? They got thrown in jail for showing love. However, as verse 4 says, in the eyes of the the Sadducees, the damage was already done. It was too late to arrest them by this point. The damage was done. Another 2,000 men, not including all the women and children, and there were probably more women and children, another 2,000 men and their families were added to the number of believers, bringing the total to 5,000 already, just weeks after Jesus had ascended. God's plan of salvation runs headlong into mankind's plan of self-serving power. As always, the world flexes its muscles and the believers are punished, but God's kingdom just keeps growing like this irritating weed. It cannot be uprooted. It cannot be pulled out. He simply cannot be stopped. We, his church, simply cannot be stopped. The next morning, Peter and John are dragged before the entire council, along with the healed man, And that's interesting because either the healed man was imprisoned with the apostles. For what? For getting healed? So either he's imprisoned with the apostles or else called in as a material witness against his healers. And what bad thing would he ever say against the people who let him walk for the first time in 40 years? Either way, he's there. And the three men are then grilled by the Sanhedrin, this religious leadership council. They're kind of like a Jewish house of commons this brain trust that decide uh, important, make important religious decisions and included in that Sanhedrin are some familiar names. Did you catch some of those familiar names of who was included in the trial of Peter and John? Remember Caiaphas and Annas? They show up prominently in the the passion of Jesus. Annas is the high priest and Caiaphas was his father-in-law, the former high priest. So even though Caiaphas is retired, He's kind of like a professor emeritus. He's no longer the guy, but is still given and granted all kinds of authority and power because of his wisdom. And that system actually makes a lot of sense. Why discard somebody just because they're retired? They have a wealth of, of wisdom to offer. And so that system makes sense. But Annas is the high priest. But Caiaphas is the one who, who takes the lion's share of the blame for Jesus' death and resurrection, or crucifixion and death. Just weeks earlier, these two men, Caiaphas and Annas, had handed Jesus over to Pilate and thus bore the chief responsibility for the murder of God's Son as Jesus makes clear in John 19.11 when Jesus says to Pilate, He who delivered me to you has the greater sin. You know who delivered Jesus to Pilate? Caiaphas. That's who. Caiaphas bears the lion's share of the guilt for Jesus' death. Can you imagine then... How incredulous and how frustrated Caiaphas must feel here? What the heck? More Jesus? We're still hearing about Jesus? I thought we had crucified all that Messiah nonsense out of him and his followers. I thought we proved he was no savior when we spilled his worthless blood on the ground of Golgotha. Why are we still hearing about that uneducated Nazarene from these uneducated fishermen? What is going on? I thought we crushed this. I thought we were done with this. Not even close. And that right there, why are we still hearing about that uneducated Nazarene from these uneducated fishermen? That right there was the central probing question that the the Sanhedrin brought before Peter and John. In verse 7, the council demands to know, by what power and whose name did you heal this man? In other words, basically, who gave you the right to waltz into our temple... And do the miraculous things that make us look so bad? Who gave you the right? By what name do you do these things? It's a desperate question from a group of shallow men who've just had their egos bruised. They were the educated elite. They were God's happy little club of religious insiders. They were the ones who had all the rules built up like a safe little cage that they could put their almighty creator in and shut them up. Because it's their rules. Authority and power and divine will were theirs. Not these homeless drifters from backwater Galilee. Who do they think they are? Waltzing into our temple like that. In fact, do you know what they actually call the apostles in verse 11? Here's your Greek words for the day. This is good. They consider Peter and John to be, first, agramatos, and second, idiotes. Yeah. Yeah. Agrammatos, the a in agrammatos is a prefix that means not, kind of like, uh, yeah, like un or non. Yeah, so grammatos, gramma means writing, so agrammatos means ones who don't know how to write, basically illiterate, uneducated country bumpkins. That's what the that's what agrammatos means. And if I say idiotes enough you'll probably catch on as to what English word is derived from the Greek word idiotes. We get idiot from this Greek word, but the Greek word literally just means ordinary common folk, just a a day laborer, just your average ordinary Joe Jew out there, just regular, just normal person. That's what idiotes means. Nothing special, just a regular Joe, an idiot. In other words, the Sanhedrin see that this very real healed man beside, beside Peter and John, they see this very real healed man. And they listen to Peter respond to them with real authority and real power and real well-reasoned arguments based on real scripture and real events. And out of all that, the Sanhedrin are really, really shocked. They aren't, Peter and John are not seminary theologians. They don't have a master's in divinity. They didn't offer a session at Breakforth. Who are these uneducated nobodies? Who are these idiots? And why do they speak so forcefully? And why do they sound so authoritatively? And why can't we just stop them already? Well, my dear Caiaphas and Annas, let me address your concerns. Yes, they are uneducated in your eyes. They didn't go through all the rabbinic training that you went through. But they had three years of immersive training and intensive lecturing at the feet of the greatest rabbi in history. They studied the law and the prophets extensively with him who fulfills the law and the prophets. They watched him rely on his father for all of his needs. They saw him show kindness and grace and justice apart from the Pharisaic self-righteousness. They heard him speak of mysterious eternal truths through stories of fathers and sons, debts and debtors, sheep And goats, widows, and Samaritans, bread and wine. But most of all, in this moment, standing before their enemies, the very deniers of truth and salvation, Peter and John, these uneducated idiotes, remember these words spoken by their master, these teachings of their master Jesus from Luke 21. So don't worry in advance about how to answer the charges against you. For I will give you the right words and such wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to reply or refute you. When you stand before the people who will levy these charges against you, don't be afraid because I will speak for you. I will give you all the wisdom you need. They won't even be able to respond to you. You You'll crush them with with the wisdom that I am going to give you. Jesus predicted this. He knew it would happen to him and he knew it would happen to his followers. Peter and John are remembering that this is not their battle. They need not fear because, as it says in verse 8, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. He is fighting the battle. They need only trust that they'll be given the words to say. Just show up, have faith, and open your mouth. He will do the rest. Jesus promised that this exact thing would happen. And when it did, they didn't need a graduate degree or an anointing as a high priest. Or noble birth to bring power and truth to their enemies. They didn't need anything except the following. Number one, the indwelling Holy Spirit. Number two, confident knowledge of what Jesus said. And number three, faith. And you know what? That's all we need in order to defend our faith as well. We need to know that the Holy Spirit is in us, empowering us, that the words are not our own. There's a lot of freedom to that, I think. Don't you think? There's a lot of freedom for Peter and John. If we don't need to worry, we don't need to prepare exactly the right words to say, that's incredibly freeing. Second of all, we need to know what our Lord said to us. Uh, Peter and John, they knew not just what Jesus had said, they knew the entirety of what Scripture said. That's true for us too. We need to know what God's Word says. We need to know the promises and the commands of our Master if we're going to represent Him in defending our faith. That just makes sense. If you're going to build some Ikea furniture, you need to know how to build the Ikea furniture. If I just get in there with my twisty wrench and my bolt and my, I don't even know what these parts are called, it's not going to come out looking like a, a chest of drawers. It's not going to come out looking like firewood. I need to know what it says so I can do it. That's what number two here says. We need to know what Jesus said so that when we're called into account for our faith, we know what, we have something to fall back on. And third, we need faith. Faith that the Holy Spirit would feed them the words to say, to bring glory to the Father and the Son. Faith that he is present even in suffering. Faith that he will use even little old us, even in our weakness and our smallness and our uncertainty and our fear. Faith that he will use even you and even me. It is, after all, his glory at stake, not ours. We don't need to look good. He needs to look good. So why wouldn't he help us? It's his image. It's his name at stake. Of course he's going to help us. True, we may end up back in prison or unpopular with the locals. But shouldn't our attitude be like Peter's attitude in verses 19 and 20? When he replies, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop. We can't stop. We cannot be stopped. We will not stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. We cannot stop. Do your worst, enemies of truth. Bring the pain, betrayers of salvation. We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. It is our mission. It is our purpose. It is our command. We cannot stop. Wave whatever misplaced authority or whatever misguided power or whatever misunderstood religion you want to in our face. Wave it in front of us all you like. We will not bow to you, world. The blasphemous, fear-mongering, hate-spewing, judgmental Christian leaders of our day, and I can think of a few that make my skin crawl, they will not destroy our beloved kingdom. It will only empower us to greater acts of forgiveness and compassion and kindness and unity. The self-serving, consumption-driven, morality-rejecting, anti-Jesus society that we live in will not drown us or choke us with its blackness. It will only empower us to shine brighter for our God. When others besmirch or belittle the name of Jesus, whether from inside or outside the church, we will pro- proclaim the authority of his name and demonstrate its power with a love that is fueled by his Holy Spirit. And with a message like Peter's, Jesus alone brings healing. Jesus alone brings life. We will not be stopped. We cannot stop. His name alone is where true power comes from. Power for the lame to walk. Power for the rebel to obey. Power for the common idiots of Galilee and Clyde alike to rise up and declare with one voice that there is salvation in no one else. As Peter says to conclude his defense, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we are saved. No name except the name of Jesus. When the world demands to know where we get our powerful healing love from, we'll tell them. Peter was ready to say, in fact, he says, you want to know by what power we do these things? Let me tell you by what power we do these things. He's very, he doesn't pass up the opportunity to proclaim the power of the name of Jesus. I may not be the smartest or the most charismatic or the most morally upstanding man. I may not have it all figured out. I may not be good enough. But I know the one who is. And because of him, because of his grace and his power and his goodness, I cannot stop. Sometimes I want to stop. Sometimes I wish I could stop. Because it's really frustrating sometimes to be a Christian and to follow Jesus. And it leads to a lot of problems with myself and with the people around me who I love. Sometimes I wish I could stop, if I'm being honest. But I can't. I cannot stop. We cannot stop. We cannot be stopped we will not stop and we will not be stopped as a church and as a kingdom even one filled with a bunch of agramatas and idiotas we are an unstoppable force we cannot stop and we will not stop and we do not wish to stop because in him we find our courage in him we find our power in him we find our salvation and in him we find our life Clyde Christian Bible Church I believe this about us Walking with him is miraculous, and it is dangerous, as with a toddler. It is not a safe thing to follow behind your Messiah. Because you know where the Messiah goes to? He goes to his cross. And you know where he calls us to go as well? To our cross. So if you think that following him will make life convenient or prosperous in any way, materially, you are sadly mistaken. And I do not understand when Christians promote that kind of gospel. Because that's not what I see from Jesus or his followers. It is dangerous to follow in the steps of our Christ. It is a treacherous thing. It is miraculous and it's beautiful, but it's dangerous. But the thing is, I believe this as well, that whatever we face, we face it with him. And we cannot stop and we cannot be stopped. Let's pray. Father, you are the engine that drives us. Holy Spirit, you are the force that brings us life and power and authority, just like it, you did for Peter and John. Thank you that you share that power with us as well. And Father, I pray that we would not stop, that we would not, we would not back out of our responsibility to proclaim you, to make you known through word and deed, just as Peter and John did. Father, you call us to do wonderful, powerful, authoritative things as well. In, in, in little acts of love and compassion and forgiveness. So help us to not stop. We know that with you driving us and empowering us that we cannot be stopped and we do not want to stop. I, I pray that we would grow in, in power and in desire to see your kingdom prosper here on earth. Father, you are good and we thank you for your goodness to us and for the power that you share with us through your Holy Spirit. And I pray that we would be fearless and courageous just as Peter and John and that the world would know you through us and that you would be glorified. We pray this in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen.